So good morning, good morning, good morning, Calvary Chapel, both on live stream and on Facebook Live. Good morning. Welcome. We are going to be, while you wait for me to put my glasses on so I could see, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 today. We're going to begin in verse 1. And um, if you could read this with me. I'm going to read these passages, only seven passages. We're going to be looking at the Church of Ephesus this morning. So why don't we just read them together. To the angel of the Church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved, persevered rather, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else... I will come to quickly I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So Lord, we come before you now. We ask you, Lord, to give us ears to hear, an open heart, an open mind, Lord, to take in the message that you have for each of us this morning as your word is living and active. And, and, and Lord, it just cuts right through all the junk, all the garbage that we've learned and been taught. And that's what we pray this morning, Lord, that you would cut through all of that and let us hear the truth that's contained in your word, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that all those hearing my voice would not just take what I have to say, but would be Bereans and look it up for themselves, Lord. So go before us now. Bless this word as it goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to begin a journey along an ancient postal route. A postal route that, by the way, is going to lead us, although it, it, this letter was written over 2,000 years ago, or this, this message, rather, was from a, over 2,000 years now that Jesus is gone. This message leads us up to today, believe it or not, uh, because as we're going to study through these churches, it's not only a picture of the church that actually existed in that, that day, it's also a picture of the church that we church age that we're living in today. So this postal route that we're going to look at over these next seven churches are going to lead us along a journey that's going to lead us right up until the church age that we're living in currently. Now this particular postal route or mail route, how it was set up was that the mail would come from Rome across the Aegean Sea right to the first place on the mail route, which was the church, or the city, rather, of Ephesus. And that is where our study is going to begin this morning, in Ephesus. So from Ephesus, which was the first, 
you would, the mail would make its way to the other churches. And the way the route would go was it would go from Ephesus to Smyrna, and then from Smyrna to Pergamon, and then on to Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and finally it would wind up in the last or the end of the postal route in Laodicea. And as you're going to see, that is exactly the order that Jesus addresses each of these letters to these seven churches in these seven cities. And these seven churches addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 were real churches at the time. They actually existed. But they also represent the church age throughout the ages. So it's a little bit of history represented here as well. And so when Jesus told John to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will be, what Jesus was telling him is that we're going to buckle up because we're going to be taking a journey through time as we go through the book of Revelation. And today we're going to look at the things which are, meaning the church age. And we're going to begin a journey through the age of the church. And I just want to lay that out for you. So if you have a, if you're taking notes, I'll go a little slower. The first study is in Ephesus. And that's going to span from 30 to 100 A.D. And we call that the, apo the apostolic age or apostolic age. Um, that is where the, the apostles still had an influence in the church. And then Smyrna goes from 100 A.D. to 313 A.D., Smyrna rather, and that is the age of persecution. Pergamum, 313 A.D. to 600 A.D., and that is the age of the church age of compromise. That's when Constantine was ruling and reigning. And then we move on to Thyatira, which covers from 600 A.D. to 1517 A.D., or the Dark Ages of the Church. And then we come to Sardis, 1517 A.D. to 1648 A.D., and that's the Reformation Age. Uh, the Renaissance occurred during that time. And then we come to the Church in Philadelphia, which covers the Church Age between the 1648 in 1900 A.D., and that is a time of the Great Awakening in the church. And then finally, the Church of Laodicea from 1900 to today, and that we discover is the apostate church. So there's seven churches, and as you may know, seven is the number of perfection or completeness. And so these seven churches actually represent the complete history of the church. And so what happens at the end of the age of the church? Well, what happens at the end of the age of the church, or the church age comes to an end, is the rapture. The rapture, the rise of the Antichrist, and the great tribulation. That's what occurs. Before the Antichrist, before the tribulation can occur, the scripture tells us that there must be a falling away first. There must be a falling away from the word of God. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He said, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, meaning the end, until the falling away comes first, for the man of sin and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So Paul says that there's a couple things that have to happen before the tribulation, before the end. First of all, there will be a falling away from the word of God. And then next, you'll see the rise of the Antichrist, and then we'll have the tribulation. So the apostasy, or the falling away, in some translations, actually call it the rebellion, and that's exactly what it is. It's a rebellion against God's word. So 
the church age began with the apostolic age, where the apostles still had influence in the church, and it will end in the age of the church that we are living in currently, with apostasy or a falling away from the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. The word apostasy, as I mentioned, means rebellion. It means falling away or an abandonment of the truth. And so what we see around us today in the churches and all around us is a rebellion, if you will, against the word of God in the last days. And you have to really ask yourselves, if you don't believe that, just look around. Is what you're seeing exactly what is being described here? A rebellion, a falling away from the truth? Sadly, I believe that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing a falling away from the word of God just as Paul described to Timothy that would happen. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, that they, the church, will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So, if listen, if we're seeing this now, if we're seeing the apostasy that's described in the church of Laodicea, and we know that that's the end of the church age, how much closer are we to the rapture of the church and to the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist. Now, by the way, that name Laodicea, and we're just going to talk about Laodicea briefly for a second here. We're actually looking at Ephesus this morning. But Laodicea means people ruling. That's what it means. Meaning the church is led by man, not by the Holy Spirit. And sadly, we do see that in many churches today. So you can see how this isn't just a message for the church that existed then, but it is a message for the church age, the church throughout the ages. And we are, I believe, in this last church age, the age of the Laodicean church or the age of apostasy. And I say that based on the fact that this book that we have in front of us is a book of prophecy. The book of Revelation begins with these words. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. The book ends with these words. If anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy. Revelation 22 verse 19. So if this book begins with prophecy and ends with prophecy, then what lies in between is prophecy. So we're not only going to get a look at the church as it was then in Asia Minor along this postal route, we're going, to, we're going to get a prophetic view of the church throughout the ages as we study through these seven churches. And so what we're going to learn as we go along this postal route are three things. That there is, in fact, an actual church that Jesus is addressing with this letter. Second, this letter also addresses the churches throughout the ages before, or leading up to, rather, the rapture. And thirdly, since we, you and I, are the church, this is a message and it has an application for each one of us. Because, listen, as believers, we are the church. The church really doesn't have any walls. The body makes up the church. 
We are the church body, meaning we are the church. So as Jesus addresses each of these seven churches, there's a message in there for you and I as believers. So let's dig in. Let's begin our journey through the postal route, the ancient postal route that goes through these seven churches and these seven cities. And we're going to begin with the city of Ephesus. So look again at chapter 2 in the first part of verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now Jesus addresses each church and there is an outline. Just like there is an outline for the book of Revelation. Right? The things which you see, the things that are, and the things that will be. And believe me, every pastor who's ever gone through Revelation is grateful for the fact that there is an outline. But there's also an outline in these letters. And so as we go through these letters, we're going to break them down into five sections. First, the address. And in this case, that's the city who this letter is addressed to, and this this morning would be Ephesus. The addressee is the church that this letter is addressed to, which is the church in Ephesus. Then there's an affirmation. Jesus tells the church what they're doing right, and there's an admonition. He's telling the church what they're doing wrong. And then there's an appeal from Jesus for them to turn back, to repent, and turn back to him. So we're going to begin with the first section, the address. This letter is addressed to the city of Ephesus, and the name Ephesus means desirable or darling. And it was a desirable place to live. I mean, it was a a wealthy coastal community. And so people desired to live here. It was right on the Aegean Sea. It was beautiful. And it was the darling of Asia Minor as it was the first and foremost in this ancient postal route. And that's important to know because being the first and foremost gave them an awesome responsibility. They had the responsibility as the church, the first, to put the Lord first in all that they did. And thereby they were to set the example for all the churches along that route to follow. But as we're going to see as we go through this letter, they had lost their love for Jesus. And that would have a profound effect all throughout church history. Right up until the day where we're living in the time of apostasy, where the word word is being fallen away from, it's being rebelled against. And that all stemmed from the loss of love for Jesus right from the very beginning. That loss that they experienced, that loss of love for Jesus Christ, began to take route and root rather and grow over time, leading us up. It didn't happen overnight. This apostasy that we're seeing didn't happen overnight. It began right here in Ephesus. It took root right here in Ephesus and has grown over the ages to get us to the place where we're at now. Ephesus, the city, is located in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. In fact, all of these churches are in the same place. The population in Ephesus was believed to be somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 people. Now, believe it or not, that was a fairly large city for its time. The city boasted an amphitheater, which held about 25,000 people, so it was a pretty big amphitheater. It had a port which brought tourists, it brought trade, and it brought great wealth into the city. But what it was most famous for was its temple to the goddess Artemis in the Greek or Diana in the Latin. Rome 
called her Diana. The Greeks called her Artemis. This temple was said to hold over 24,000 people. It was a megachurch. It was, con- it was considered at the time, or it was considered by historians as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple also came complete with hundreds and hundreds of, of temple priests and priestesses, which really were prostitutes. Interesting how the Lord had set up his church in a place steeped in idolatry and immorality. And it reminds us, it's a, it's a reminder to us as the church that we are the light, or more accurately, the light bearer. We bear the light of Jesus Christ in this dark world, and that's exactly why Jesus had planted this church here, because it was to be a light in this very dark place. But as we're going to discover as we move through this letter this morning, and this, this, the addressee, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, that that light began to grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. So look at the second part of chapter 2, verse 1. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So again, the addressee of this letter is the church in Ephesus, to the pastors, to the leaders, to the body. And we find a lot is written about the church of Ephesus, or the history of the church of Ephesus, in the book of Acts. And so you could turn there. I'm not going to read directly from it, but if you want to look at it as I'm, re- as I'm mentioning some of these examples, this begins in Acts chapter 19. In Acts 19, verses 1 through 5, we see Paul coming upon some disciples in the city of Ephesus. And he asked them, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they responded to Paul and says, We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So Paul lays hands on them. I'm giving you the short version, and I'm sure you appreciate that. And he lays hands on them, and they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So many believe that this was the very beginning of the, Ephesus, of the church in Ephesus right here, that these 12 spirit-filled men were going to make a difference in the city. And we know from history that 12 spirit-filled men can make a difference in the world. Because Jesus gave the message to 12 spirit-filled apostles. And we, the church that exists today, exists, believers exist because of those 12 men and their desire to continue to spread the gospel message. And they spread the gospel message to others who spread it to others who spread it to others. And it's the message we still have today. It hasn't changed. The faces may have changed. The clothing may have changed. The buildings may have changed. But that message has never changed and never will. This is one of the many churches that Paul planted along the way. And so Ephesus became a church, or at least there was a church established there. And it wasn't an easy ground for ministry in Ephesus. Just because Paul was there, and I'm going to read some other names that you may remember or recall. And so just because Paul was there beginning this ministry, just because of the church that Paul planted, doesn't mean they had an easy time of it. In Acts chapter 19, verse 9, it tells us that the hearts of the people were hardened, and they even spoke evil of the way. Now, that's what Christians were called early on. They were called followers of the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they were called followers of the way. But Paul stayed right here, 
and he taught here in a school named called Tyrannus for two years. Most agree that Paul spent at least three years here in Ephesus planting and getting this church up and running. Now that time he spent here had tremendous effect on the area as we read in Acts 19.10. It says, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the word spread from here, spread from Ephesus. We know from scripture that Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos preach here in the synagogue in Ephesus. It was from here, if you remember the story, where they collected the headbands and aprons of Paul and took them to the sick and demon-possessed, and they were healed and the demons were cast out of them. It is from here in Ephesus, one of my favorite stories in Scripture, where the seven sons of Sceva were beaten up by demons that they tried to exercise out of a man. The demons said to them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but you. <laughs> I don't know who you are. And so they leapt on him and they just tore him up. This church is planted in a place where there's rampant idolatry, rampant sexual immorality, and there was an evil presence here in this area. But remember, this church, as it started out, is filled with spirit-filled believers, and they were making a difference in the community. So much so that many who had practiced divination brought their magic books and all their paraphernalia and burned them in the sight of all, the Bible tells us. So that when they wound up, when everything was burnt and they totaled up all of the things that had been burned up, it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver or almost $8,000 in today's, by today's standards. So over $8,000 worth of books were burned up that day. So in the city of Ephesus, the Bible tells us the word grew mightily and prevailed. There was a change in people, so much so that there was actually a riot in this town, a near riot, where a silversmith named Demetrius, who was in the business of making silver images of the goddess Diana, was losing money. Nobody was buying his statues. So he rallied all the other merchants together, and, and they came against the Christians. That's what kind of a change this was making in the city. So Ephesus, in the beginning, was a happening place for ministry. But what would become their downfall was that very thing, ministry. Because they wound up loving the ministry more than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is in the midst of... Chapter 2, verse 1, the second half of that verse tells us, in the midst of those seven lampstands. And that tells us, that's a picture of Jesus being in the midst of the church. He holds the seven stars in his hand. And so hopefully, as, as I read that, you recognize that as a picture of Jesus from chapter 1. And it tells us that this is his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church church and that he holds his church in the palm of his hand and that should be a sobering vision for us because it tells us that Jesus is walking through the church ages with us he's watching what goes on in his church and he's issuing a report card if you will for each and every one of us for each and every church because these churches, as I said, not only represent actual churches, they represent church age, and they represent believers as we are the church. So we need to pay very close attention 
to what Jesus has to say to each and every one of these churches. And so now we have the affirmation. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So listen. Listen closely to what Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus. I know your works. I know your works. I know what you've been doing. Jesus had ascended into heaven some 60 years prior to this letter being written. Yet Jesus knows what's going on in his church. And, and that's a reminder for all of us that even though it's been over 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, he still knows what's going on in his church. He still knows what's going on in the lives of his people. He knows our lying down and our rising up. He knows every idle word that comes out of our mouth. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so as we study through these letters together, we need to take a real hard look at our walk and ask ourselves, which of these churches, or maybe there's a little bit of all of these churches in us from time to time. Maybe sometimes, as a Christian, I know myself, go through seasons which some of these things are present in our walk. But you have to ask yourself, what part of any of these churches fit in with the walk I have right now? Or maybe there's a little bit of all of them in there, but that's something you have to look at and pray about. Jesus says there's three things that this church can do. There's three things that they can do to set this right. Or three things, rather, that they are doing that is right. First, they're working hard. They're patiently laboring in the field, in the, in the field of ministry. They're patiently laboring to spread the gospel message. And then he says, second, you practice sound doctrine. You practice sound doctrine and you call out those who don't. And then third, he says, you're persevering. Even, even though your fruit isn't evident, isn't evident right now, even though you're not seeing the fruit of your labor right now, you're still persevering through this. So I want to spend just a few minutes and go through each one of these things that Jesus affirms the church is doing right. First, Jesus affirms their labor of love. And that truly was in the beginning that ministry was a labor of love. Remember, they are set in a place that's rampant idolatry, rampant sexual immorality, it's dark, it's evil, and yet they're working hard sharing the gospel message. They're working hard at spreading that message of love to the people in Ephesus. Now the idea behind that Greek word for work is that they labor to the point of exhaustion. They're patient, knowing that increase can't be forced but must come from God. So they patiently share the word. The Ephesian church has put feet to their faith. Now, if we were to say this in today's language, we would say this church does a lot of outreaches. They feed the hungry. They clothe the needy. They minister to the lost. The church in Ephesus was doing it all. They were ministry superstars. Second, Jesus says to them, your doctrine is sound, and you call out apostles who are false. The church in Ephesus maintained the apostles' doctrine. They steadfastly held to the truth of the word of God, and they held others to that very same truth. 
Whenever someone came into that city preaching another gospel, a gospel contrary to the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, they called them out on it. They held them accountable for it. Anyone came into that city preaching a false doctrine that went against the word of God, the believers of Ephesus were all over them. What a contrast to the world we live in today. A world that is afraid to call out false teachings and false gospels. You know, it's not enough to just tell people what we stand for. We also need to speak out about what we stand against, what we're against. Listen to the words that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. I marvel, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of God to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Those are pretty powerful words. You'll find that passage of scripture in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. When people begin to compromise the doctrines taught in the Bible, it leads to false doctrine, which leads to another gospel being preached. So please allow me, please allow me how to, to illustrate, rather, how this all works. And I'm going to take one, just one doctrine, because we could spend a couple of weeks of messages on this very topic alone. But let me just take one prominent false doctrine actually being taught today. That, and that doctrine is that you can go to heaven by doing good works. You can get to heaven just by being a good person. And the reason that's a false doctrine is because the Bible clearly teaches it is by grace that you are saved. Through your faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Let me say that again. Not of works works lest anyone should boast Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 it's right there in the Bible it couldn't be any clearer we're not saved by anything that we do please understand that we are saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ that's how you're saved who Jesus did all the work for us he did it all for us on the cross there's nothing we have to do there's nothing we can do and teaching that you go to heaven just because you're a good person is circumventing the very sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross for each of us. It's to say that you can be saved by your works. It's to say that you don't need Jesus for your salvation. And that is a false doctrine. And that leads to people saying, even non-believers, atheists, People engaged, actively engaged in sin, it doesn't matter if you repent. It doesn't matter if you turn from that. It doesn't even matter if you believe. As long as you're a good person, you can be saved. And listen, I'm sorry, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that all you have to do is good works or be a good person and you could be saved. The Bible teaches that 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through me, John 14, 6. And I want you to look these verses up for yourselves. That's why I'm giving them to you. Do you see how false teachings, false doctrine can lead to another gospel being preached? That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That false doctrine that all you have to do is be a good person and do good works and you'll be saved, that's a false doctrine that leads to a false gospel. And the believers in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, would have jumped all over this false teaching. And again, in comparison to the world we live in today, believers are fearful of judging other teachers or religions for fear of offending them. And that shows us just how far the compromise of the word of God has come. The third affirmation that Jesus had for them is that they persevered. They continued to minister, even though the fruit of their labor, their labor rather, was slow in coming, they persevered through that. And, and that's a great lesson for all of us. Because, listen, that family member that you've been ministering to, that family member that you've been sharing the word of God with, that co-worker that you've been sharing the gospel message with, even though the fruit of your labor is slow in coming, persevere, continue to share the gospel message. Listen, I've said this before, and it's worth repeating. It isn't important if you see them come to Christ. And I know, listen, I know we'd all love to see that. I, there's some family members I have that I'd love, I would love to see in my lifetime come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I would be, I have a lot more peace about that. But it doesn't, what matters not that I see it, what matters is that I see them in heaven. And what that means is that you may not see them come to the Lord, but because you're faithful in ministering, because you're, you persevere in sharing the gospel message with them, that one day, even after you're gone, they may turn to Christ and be saved. And that you may not have seen them come to Jesus Christ in your lifetime, but you see them in heaven, and that is the most important thing. Amen? So the application in that is never give up. Always persevere in sharing the gospel message. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now imagine being a church, or have the board get together, and Jesus is there, and Jesus sits down and says, Hey, I got this to say against you. You've left, you've left your first love. That's a hard thing to hear for any church, for any believer. You've left your first love. Paul had visited the church and planted the church in Ephesus around, around 52 A.D. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians around 60 A.D., so maybe about eight years later. And in that letter, Paul writes to them, to the church of Ephesus, about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, about how Jesus redeemed them with his blood. Paul wrote to them about God's rich mercy, his love for us. All of that was in the letter to the, Ephes to the church in Ephesus. He wrote to them about God's love for us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive in Christ. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul wrote about God's love to this church in Ephesus, and some 35 years later, that's all it took, they lost their love for Christ. It took less than a generation for them to forget about all the things that they knew about Jesus Christ. 
You know, this word that Jesus uses here, this loss of love, that word love is agape in the Greek. Agape love is the purest of all loves. It's the willful, sacrificial love, a love that's not concerned with self, but seeks the good of others. That's what that love means. That's what that word means. Agape love is a faithful, committed, sacrificial love for others and loving people, expecting nothing in return from them. And that's exactly the kind of love that describes God's love for us. And our love for God is we're to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. Now the greatest example in the Bible of God's agape love is Jesus Christ dying for our sins while we were still sinners. That's the greatest example we have. And the best definition of agape love is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And this is my favorite part of that passage. It bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. Love never fails. I love that. I love that passage of Scripture. To love others with that kind of agape love doesn't come easy for us, does it? Because of our, and that's because of our sinful nature. We don't normally, naturally love like that. But that's exactly how God loves, because it is natural to him. It's who he is. It's who God is. God is love. So by staying close to God, we not only experience his great love for us, but we can better understand what true love really is. And all those God's love for us, or through God's love for us, as we understand it more and more and more, it enables us then to love others. Because the other part of that verse where we are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and all our mind, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we can only do that as we're staying close to God. Basking in his love enables us to love others. Now while I'm preparing this message I was seeking the Lord. I mean, I know all the textbook answers for this, why the Ephesian church lost their love. But I was asking the Lord what it really meant that the Ephesian church had lost their first love. And sometimes, as he does, he provided an example for me in a very unexpected way. And the example he provided for me led me to think about the 12 apostles and how they were chosen. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen. They were just rough, tough guys. They were blue-collar workers. Matthew was a tax collector. He was the most hated. He was hated by all of Jerusalem. All the Jewish people hated Matthew. Jewish people hated tax collectors because they were their own who turned against them. Simon was a zealot, meaning he was a Zionist which if you compare that to today, it would be like being a nationalist, someone who had national pride, someone who defended America, would defend America with their life. And Simon, rather, was just that kind of a person. He hated Roman oppression. Now, we don't know much about the other apostles, but we do know that they all lived around the Sea of Galilee. So it's very possible that they were all employed in a trade that supported the fishing industry, which was huge in that area. But the point is, they were all different, every one of them. They all had different opinions, they all had different likes, they all had different dislikes, but 
there's one thing that they probably all agreed on. Matthew bothered them in the beginning anyway. And, and at the very least, they distrusted him because he was a tax collector. And that was ingrained in them to hate him. Yet they were all united together as one. What could possibly have brought all of these guys from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different opinions, all of that together? One word, Jesus. Jesus brought them together. Jesus and his love for them and their love for him is what united them. And what kept them together after Jesus left this earth was a common bond and a desire to share the message of the gospel. So first came their love for Jesus, and that only grew as they spent more and more and more time with him. And then came their love for others as they, they cared enough about others, they loved others to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. You see, they were able to look past each other's differences as long as they stayed focused on Jesus. As long as they remembered Jesus' love for them and their love for him, they could look past the differences of others. And, and I believe the church in Ephesus knew Jesus, so they knew what love was, because they knew Jesus Christ. But what caused them, what caused them to lose their love for him? First of all, that word lost means neglect or to disregard or to, to let alone, to just walk away from. And here's what I believe happened to the church in Ephesus. At first, they were ministering to the people in Ephesus. They were ministering to the idolaters and to the sexually immoral. And they were ministering to them out of the abundance of love in their heart, the abundance of love that Jesus had for them and they had for Jesus, that sacrificial love, that agape love. And they ministered daily to the poor and the needy. They preached the gospel message to the idolaters and the sexually immoral people of the city. And at first they looked past the differences of all those people. They looked past the differences in their lifestyle, the differences of opinions. But as they began to neglect and disregard and leave alone their walk with the Lord they also began to drift away from all that they had been taught. And their ability to look past the sins of the people also began to fade away. Now perhaps they even began to look down on the people of Ephesus, the people that they ministered to, and, and began to exalt themselves up as being something more than they were. I mean, at the very heart of it, and, and what keeps us humble as Christians, is the knowledge that we are sinners. We're no different than anybody else. The only thing that makes us different is that we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, it reminds me of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, where the Pharisee said to God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector standing next to me. The Pharisee had exalted himself over the people that he was to be ministering to. And it's evident by his attitude and his heart that he had lost his love for the people. And so did the church in Ephesus. They had lost their first love. They had lost their love for Christ, and that meant they lost their love for the people that they were ministering to. Yet they continued to serve, they continued to minister, but they did it out of a sense of duty rather than a heart of love. And there is a difference. Believe me, there's a difference. It isn't that they were unable to love. They knew what love was. They just forgot how to love. 
They had forgotten that the only way that they could show agape love toward others was to first experience that love at the feet of Jesus on a daily basis. We need that every day. And then their love for others would come out of that love for Jesus. And we see a great illustration of this in the account of Martha and Mary in Luke's chapter, in Luke's gospel, rather, chapter 10. Now, Martha had invited Jesus over for dinner. And so she's busy, as any of you would be, preparing the meal for Jesus. I mean, Jesus is coming. You know, he's the guest of honor. Everything's got to be perfect. And so she's busy preparing the meal. And as she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off, getting everything ready, she's probably getting burned out. And she realizes that she has a sister, her sister Mary, who could be helping her prepare this meal. But where is Mary? Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus teach. And so Mary complains that she needed her sister's help. And this is what Jesus said to her. Or Martha, rather, complained. Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her. Luke chapter 10, verses 41 through 42. Martha was busy serving. So busy serving that she had forgotten all about the, the best thing, and that was spending time with Jesus, the most important thing. Not that serving is bad. Please don't misunderstand me. Serving is not bad. Um, serving is good. But when, you're, when you put serving before spending time with Jesus, before sitting at the feet of Jesus, it becomes more about the ministry than it does about the Messiah, and that's when you get in trouble. And the church in Ephesus had done just that. They had drifted away from their love of Jesus and replaced that love with a desire to serve. When it should have been just the opposite. They should have been serving out of their love for Jesus. And that's what Jesus has against them. But, but, there's still hope for this church. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here's the appeal now Jesus makes to this church. This is what you need to this is what you're doing, and this is what you need to correct. And this is how you correct it. So Jesus gives them three steps. Remember, repent, and return. Remember your love for me. Remember how eagerly you anticipated spending time with me. You know, when you really are accustomed to and get used to spending time with Jesus, you look forward to that time. You're actually disappointed when you don't come away from that time with him with, with something new or, or a piece or, because that's what you've come to expect from sitting at his feet and just hearing his voice through his word. And that's what... That's what he says, remember, remember that feeling of love. Do you remember when you first fell in love with, with your, your wife or your husband, that first love that you experienced in your life where you couldn't wait to hear that person's voice, you couldn't wait to spend time with them, you couldn't wait to be around them? And that's exactly what it's like when we first come to Jesus. We can't wait to, to go to church. We can't wait to, to read our Bibles. We can't wait to pray to them. We can't wait to learn more about them. And that's what Jesus is saying you've walked away from. There's no more, there's no more, you're not seeking after me hard like you used to. You're not sitting at my feet like you used to. You're not 
drawing close to me. You're not experiencing that joy in your heart by just being in my presence. And he says, remember all of that because that's when you were at your highest. That's when you were on the mountaintop and that's how far you've fallen. Go back to that time. Go back to the time where you once loved me with all your heart. And that's what I want you to remember. And Jesus is telling them, there's a road map. You may have forgotten what it was like to love me, but there's a road map. Go back to the way you used to love me, and that's how you get back to loving me that way again. And then he says, repent. Now, to repent means to change. It's not enough to just recognize that you need to change. To truly repent of your sin is to change what you're doing. It's to change from what you're doing, to stop the sin that you're in. That's what repentance truly means. In other words, to repent is to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And in the case of the Ephesian church, to repent or to turn back to Christ was to turn away from their self-centered, self-centered way of doing things, their self-centered service, and their self-centered heart. That's what they were to turn away from. They were to turn away from that self-centeredness and turn back to Jesus. And then third, he says, return. Listen, repentance means absolutely nothing if you, can do, if you continue to do what you repented of. Jesus tells the Ephesian church to repent, to turn away from what you were doing, that self-centeredness, and return to me. Return to the love you once had for me, that agape love for me and for others. Return to the love of your life, Jesus Christ, and your love of others will naturally follow. And then Jesus says something even scarier than nevertheless. He says, or else, or else. And Jesus is reminding them that there's a consequence for their sin. If they were to remain in this loveless state, Jesus would come and remove their lampstand, meaning their light would go out. And the tragedy in all of this is that once that lampstand is removed, so will the presence of the Lord be removed. The Holy Spirit would depart from this church, and their light would go out. They would just be a church in name only. Sadly, there's many churches today that operate in their own strength. They would never even know if the Holy Spirit was taken from them. A.W. Tozer once said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Sadly today, that represents the church age that we live in. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church, not many people would even know the difference. Look at verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus gives them another little glimmer of hope here. There's another thing that you're doing right. You hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans. That word Nicolaitan means destruction of people. And the environment that they were ministering in, the idolatry and the sexual abuse, the sexual immorality rather, would certainly have caused the destruction of the people if they didn't turn from that. And Jesus points out that there is hope for this church. They stand against what Jesus is against, which 
Sadly, today, there's a lot of churches that stand for what Jesus is against. Jesus is pointing out to them, there's still a spark there. There's still a little tiny spark there. There's still something I can work with. The flame of love hasn't completely been extinguished. There's still hope for this little church in Ephesus. Look at verse 7. We'll finish out this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So Jesus is warning us now. You have ears? Anybody? You must have ears if you're hearing me. So Jesus says, if you have ears, and if you have ears, then he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. So he's speaking to both the Ephesian church then. He's speaking to the church age of the Ephesian church, and he's speaking to the body of Christ right now, you and I, who are the church. Listen. Listen to what Jesus is saying. There will be those in the church who overcome. They're going to hear this message. They're going to see what they're doing wrong, and they're going to overcome. And that's described to us in John's first letter. John writes, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is in one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. First John verse, chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. Meaning that there are those who hear this message and will heed the warning in faith and return to their first love and their light will remain shining brightly. And there are those who will be overcome. See, there are those who will overcome this sin in our lives, and there are those who will be overcome by it. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, not that they overcome, but are, but are overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having knowing it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20-21. through 21. So sadly, there are those who have heard the word of God and even appear to be saved. They even appear to be saved. They say all the right things, do all the right things. Listen, Judas hung out with all the right people, knew all the right ministry words to say, Amen, brother. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Knew all the words to say. But he wasn't saved, was he? In their hearts, they, are, they, know the, they know who Jesus is, but in their hearts, they're far away from the Lord. They've turned away. Now, I want to make this very clear. They did not lose their salvation. All right? Let me make that very clear to you. They did not lose their salvation. Why? And listen, listen very carefully to this. You cannot lose what you never had. Do you understand? You cannot lose something you never had in the first place. These are Christians in name only. They had a knowledge, if you notice what Peter says, they had a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A knowledge, a head knowledge. They knew who he was, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. Jesus warns them. He warns them. He warns those who, are over, those who overcome this, who heed the message. And he says, if you heed this warning and you return to me as I've outlined here for you in this letter, 
then you will eat of the tree of life. And the tree of life is an actual tree. It's an actual tree in heaven. And it represents eternity. And what Jesus is saying to them is that you will have eternity. And those who do not, those who do not heed this warning, those who are part of that, who never had salvation to begin with, will not eat of that tree. One group is saved, one group isn't. For the believers, Jesus is telling them, wake up. He's telling us, wake up, repent, return to your first love. And maybe that's a message somebody needs to hear this morning. Wake up, return to your first love. Remember what it used to be like in your walk with Jesus and go back to that. And for the ones who believe they are saved and are not, there's a way for you to know whether or not you're saved. And we're going to go through that in a, little, in a few minutes. But for those who believe they're saved and are not, if you're not saved, and the way to tell that is that you can go on sinning, you can actively be involved in sin in your life and have no conviction of that sin. If you're saved, truly, if you, are of you, if you are of Jesus Christ and you are his, there's no way that you can continue to actively sin and not be miserable about it. You will experience conviction in your life. Not condemnation, conviction. If you can spend all your time in the world and no time with Jesus and not be convicted by that, then you need to take a real hard look at your salvation because there should be a change in your life when you have Jesus Christ in your heart. Now, I'm not suggesting that those who know Jesus are perfect. Those who have Jesus in their heart are perfect because we certainly aren't. We're going to slip up from time to time. We're going to struggle with sin from time to time. I'm saying that if you're actively participating in sin and you're not miserable because of that, then you really need to examine yourself to see if you are of the faith just as Paul tells us to do. Because if you think you're saved and you are not, the consequences for that are eternal. Listen, those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior would want to repent if they're in sin as quickly and as humbly as they possibly can. They're miserable living like that. Those who have walked away from the Lord, even for a season, when the Lord keeps getting, the Lord doesn't let them go. The Lord comes after them daily. They want to turn back to the Lord as quickly as humanly possible. They want to repent. They want to return back to Jesus. But those who aren't truly saved, they just continue their lives, living their lives as if Jesus didn't matter to them at all. And the church in Ephesus had become a church in name only after all those years. They had become a church in name only. They continued on in all that they did, serving and ministering in the name of the Lord Jesus as if Jesus didn't matter to them at all. That's where they were. But there's still hope. There's still hope. There's still hope. If, that, if any of that describes you, and I pray that it doesn't, but if it does, I don't tell you this to upset you. I don't tell you this because I think I'm better than you. I'm no different than you. I was in the same position as you one time in my life. I was a sinner in need of salvation, in need of the grace of God so desperately. I would tell you that, you know, if, if you knew me then and you know me now, you'd be like, whoa, what happened to him? And there's still a lot of bugs the Lord's working out in me. And I don't tell you this to upset you. I don't tell you this to offend you. 
I tell you this to wake you up. Because I believe there's a lot of people walking around today who believe they are saved and know nothing about what salvation truly means. If you're living your life as you were before you came to know Jesus Christ, then there's a problem. If you're living in that same sinful environment, that same, those same sinful habits, then there's a problem. And I'm going to share a story with you, and I know we're probably running a little long, and I apologize for that. A good friend of mine always told me this story, always tells this story. It's about driving to a meeting in your car, and you're on your way to a meeting, and you have a flat tire. And you get out, and you start taking the lug nuts off your car, and the lug nuts roll out in the middle of the street. And you go out in the street, and you pick up all the lug nuts, and bang! You get hit by a Mack truck. You get up, you go back, you change the tire, you drive off to your meeting. That shouldn't happen, right? You got hit by a Mack truck, there should be some changes. And not for the good. And the same is true of, your, of Jesus Christ. If you haven't had an encounter with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there must be a change in your life. And if you're still doing the same sinful things that you were doing before you had knowledge of Jesus, then you need to take a real hard look at what you're doing in your salvation and examine yourself to see if you are even of the faith. And listen, if you want that, if you want to know that you know that you know, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But first, we're going to look at the application of what we learned this morning. And the first application is we stray. We stray. As Christians, we do stray. As followers of Jesus Christ, it's impossible, true followers of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for us to lose our salvation. You know that. So hopefully that didn't scare you too much. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, and you know, you know because as, as his children, we don't get away with anything, do we? As soon as we try, we, get, we learn real quick that we have a Father in Heaven who's quick to to chastise us if we get too crazy. But it is possible as followers of Jesus Christ to experiencing, experience a season or a time of wandering away from him, forgetting him in our daily lives. And I'm guilty of that. I've been guilty of that myself at times, where you get so busy that you just forget. Or, or things are going so good that you get put on autopilot. Jesus is put on autopilot. You, know, you, don't, you don't think about him as much. You don't pray as much. You don't read your Bible as much because, hey, things are going pretty good. And then all of a sudden, the trial comes in our life. And I don't know about you, but when a trial comes in my life, it causes me to be laser-focused on the Lord. And so sometimes the Lord allows a trial to come into our life to bring us back into focus, to get us to focus back on Him. Trials in our life are good for that very purpose. And so I pray that this trial that we're in right now, where the whole world is in a timeout, that that causes you to draw closer to the Lord. It causes you to focus more on Him. And secondly, sometimes we have trouble looking past the differences of others, don't we? And I've been guilty of this as well. We tend to associate, we tend to only associate with those who share the same opinions that we have. And that's understandable. I mean, especially at times like this when tensions are high, Differences of opinions can lead to arguments and threaten to further divide us, and they do. So what can we do as Christians? What can we do to continue to love other Christian brothers and sisters who do not share the same opinions we have? 
Well, we find common ground with them, the same as Jesus did with the disciples. They all came together as different as you could be. They had already formed opinions of religion and politics and marriage, you name it. They came with, with presuppositions, if you will. They already had formed their own opinions. But what united them as brothers, and si as brothers in the Lord and sisters in the Lord was Jesus Christ. That's what united them, the love that Jesus had for them and the love that they had for Jesus. And that's the same thing that unites us today as brothers and sisters in the Lord, is our love for Jesus and his love for us. And so those other things, we can just agree to disagree. In the end, they are not important. Believe me, when you get to heaven, you are not going to be arguing over who was a better president, what party you were affiliated with. Those things are not even going to come up. So why should we be fretting over them now? Listen, when we love Jesus the way he loved us, that gives us a love for others and a zeal to share the gospel message. And I want to do that right now. I want to express my zeal for sharing the gospel message for you, with you right now. And, and listen, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if, if you were concerned about this message this morning that maybe you're not walking with the Lord maybe you haven't truly given your heart to the Lord I don't know what your salvation story is but if this bothered you at all this morning if this convicted you at all this morning maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you maybe speaking to your heart and saying listen you need to fix this you need to get right with the Lord you need to know that you know that you know that you were his because it has eternal consequences If you want to know Jesus, it's as simple as A, B, C. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner. That's the first step. The first step is to say, Lord, I am a sinner. And I can't do this on my own. I'm tired of doing this on my own. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Psalm 51, David says, we were born into iniquity. In sin, our mother conceived us. So we've had the deck stacked against us from the very beginning. We're sinners, all of us. And Jesus set the bar for entering heaven. Remember I said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus set that bar, the bar of perfection. And I don't know, maybe there's somebody out there in cyberspace that's perfect. I don't know. But I know I'm not perfect, and I'm pretty sure no one I'm looking at this morning is perfect. So that presents a problem for us. How do you, if Jesus set the bar of perfection, how do any of us enter heaven if we're not perfect? And the answer to that is we are covered by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. He gives our right, his righteousness to us. So when the Lord looks upon us, he no longer sees our sinful nature, he sees us covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. B, believe with all your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he died for your sins. That he rose from the grave and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe this? Romans chapter 10 verses 10 through 11 says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Listen, it's all about the heart. And I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it until the Lord 
removes me out of this place. The difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches. It's the difference between just the knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing him here, and having him here in your heart. There were many that Jesus was writing this letter to that had Jesus in their heart, and because of that love of Jesus Christ, they would return to their first love because they knew the way. They knew Christ. And then there were those who just knew Jesus in their head and would go on living their lives as if Jesus didn't matter at all. That's the difference. If you believe in your heart that, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And then once you admit that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus died for those sins, then we're called to repent of that sin, to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. And then the third is C, call upon the name of the Lord. Call out to Jesus. Confess that you can't do this on your own, that you need him. That you want him to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior. That you're tired of living the way you're living. You're tired of living the sinful life that you've been living. You don't want to live that way anymore. You want to be assured that you have an eternal home. That when you leave here, you are going to go into all eternity and spend that eternity with Jesus Christ. If you want to be assured of that, Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and again, again, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then here's the promise. You will be saved. Now these aren't magic words. None of these are magic words. There's power in the word of God, yes. But and you could string these all together and say them just in your mind. That doesn't save you. You have to believe this in your heart. You have to truly want Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in your heart. And maybe that's the difference for some of you. I don't know. But if we were to put this, these words into a prayer... And a lot of people need that. So I'm going to guide you in a prayer using these words. And I, again, I, I, I have to emphasize this. These are not magical words. This is not a magical prayer. Just saying these words isn't going to save you. But believing them in your heart is what's going to save you. So if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he is the Messiah, and that you want him to be your Lord and Savior, then pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner, that I can never reach heaven by my own good deeds. As you said, you are the only way to heaven, not by my good works, not by anything that I've done, not by the life of righteousness that I believe that I've lived, because as your word says, Lord, there are none righteous, no, not one. Right now, Lord, Right now, I place my faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son, the Messiah, who rose from the dead and gave me eternal life. Please forgive me of my sins. Help me to live for you, Lord. Help me to, to turn from those sins, to repent of those sins and turn to you. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And thank you, Lord, for accepting me and giving me eternal life. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer and you've truly believed it in your heart, then there will be a change in your life. You're going to start noticing things. Listen, there's no list that comes with Christians that says, here's a, a, th a list of things you can't do. That doesn't, you don't get that list. But what happens is you're going to notice in your life that there's things that you used to like to do, things that may not have been good for you or someone else, and you're going to like, dislike them more and more and more. 
you're not going to want to do the, some of the things that you used to do. And that's how you're going to know that there's a true change in your life. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a gradual change. And for some of you, it may be like, bang, it just happens. And I know for me, it was gradual. It was over time. And, and as I began to grow in the Lord, I began to change even more. So I encourage you to find a Bible teaching, teaching church and be taught the word from Genesis to Revelation and continue to grow in the Lord. So listen, this morning is a communion Sunday, and so if you're with us, now's a good time, if you haven't already, to get your elements together. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're going to, we're going to partake of communion together this morning as a church, both live and live stream. But let's pray before we do that. Lord, we just lift you up on high this morning. I pray for all those who heard this message this morning, Lord, that there was someone out there that, that needed to hear it, and I pray that it spoke directly to their heart. And, Lord, I pray that if there's a new brother or sister out there, God bless them. Welcome to the family of God. And, Lord, I just pray that you would bless them in ways that they can't imagine, that they would notice their life changing right before their very eyes, that others would notice their life changing. And Lord, I pray that you just do a mighty work in them and through them. Go before us now as we share communion, as we remember the sacrifice that you made for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, blessed and broken, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So as you have the communion elements, the bread and the, and the juice, which represents the bread that represents the body of Christ and the juice that represents his blood, we're going to partake of that um, one by one. We'll start with the bread first. And so I'll, I'll let you know that, you know, this is the time, and we'll partake together. But first, just want to talk about that sacrifice, that, that agape love, that agape love that God had for each of us, that he would send his only begotten son to die for our sin, and that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That is the measure of love. The height, the depth, the width of love is measured by the cross. How the cross reaches from the heavens to the earth. How it stretches as far around the globe as possible. From the east to the west as far as one outstretched hand to the other. The depth of God's love that he would send his only son to die for our sin. What an amazing display of love the cross is. 
And so as we partake this morning, we remember that sacrificial love, that agape love. We remember God's love for us and prayerfully, hopefully, it, it, it just sparks something in us to want to know that love even more. And not just to know that love, but to share that love with others. To love others enough to share the love of Christ with them. So as we partake this morning, I pray that we never lose our first love. That we always are in love with Jesus. That we always make him the first and foremost in our lives. The first priority each and every day. That he's the first one we think of when we wake up in the morning. And he's the last one we think of when we go to bed at night. And we think about him all day long. So as we partake this morning of the bread. Let's remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for each and every one of us. And the love that he lovingly, willingly went to that cross to die for us. Let's partake. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Listen, you know, we were just Jesus was just talking about eternity, the tree of life, the tree that you'll see. When you enter eternity, when you enter into heaven, you'll see this tree of life. You'll eat of it for the rest of eternity. It's, it's just, I can't even imagine the beauty that awaits all of us. And Jesus says, he gives us this promise, this amazing promise that we will do this again. We will all gather together as a church body and we will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will be united as one. All of our past differences, our past Everything will be gone, and we will just be united to Christ, with Christ in heaven, sharing this marriage supper of the Lamb, laughing at each other. You know, I can't believe you said that, bro. But hey, we're in heaven now. It's all that matters, right? And listen, some of us may still be looking around wondering, how did I get here? You know, I'm probably going to be one of those. You know, how did I get here, Lord? I'm just grateful to be here. Um, I've heard people say that for some, they'll get a little thimble of blessings and others get a big 55-gallon drum of blessings once you're in heaven, you know, and, and I don't know if that's true or not, but it's not going to matter. No one's going to look at you and say, hey, you only got a thimble. I got a, because if that was the case, you wouldn't be there in the first place, but it doesn't matter. The fact that we're there, the fact that we're sitting down to the marriage supper of the Lamb, seeing him, gazing upon the one who gave up so much for us. That pure love that will emanate from him. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see his face, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I can't even fathom the chills that will run through your body when you hear those words. To know that, that Jesus looked at you throughout the ages, looked at you as a believer and watched you and said to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I can't wait. So as we partake this morning, let's remember that blood that he shed for each and every one of us because without that, we would not be able to enter heaven. It's only through him. He is the only way. Let's partake.
God bless you guys and keep you safe.